Well, I bring you greetings, Christmas greetings from the staff and people at Redeemer Bible Church in Gilbert. Um, as Luke said, four years ago, I stood up here and the elders commissioned my wife and I to, to go to this church and be, a, um, to be the interim pastor. And three and a half years ago, like Luke said, they said, we want you to stay full-time. And so it's been really incredible over those years. Uh, three and a half years ago, when I became the lead pastor, we'd already lost about half the church. So we were right around 90 people at that time. And the church was dying very, very quickly. And it was one of those things where I wasn't sure, have I, have I come to this church to kind of help turn it around, or am I the grim reaper here coming to put it in the ground? Like I wasn't, wasn't sure yet at the time, what, what am I going to be here? So last week, we had a membership dinner. We got everybody together, and it was at that time that I told them that it, it's, really not, it's really not correct anymore to call us a church turnaround. We went from 90 people in March of 15 to now we're right around 700 people every Sunday. And so it is totally a God story that he would do that kind of thing. So Luke wanted me to give you a little update, and so I'll tell you this through a story recently. There was a um, denominational leader that I've come to know and, and talked to a little bit, and he said, well, tell me your story. So I'm telling him the story, and he just stops, and he goes, wait a minute, John, you don't understand what, what you are experiencing is a miracle. And I said, well, I'm in it every day. What are you talking about? And he goes, John, to go from 90 people to over 703 and a half years, like most church turnarounds do not turn around. They die. He said, it's less than 1% have something like 800% growth in three and a half years. He's like, that is, that is an absolute miracle. And so that is our story up to this point. We're super excited. We get to be a part of that. God has kindly decided to give new life to this church. And, and he has done it through many of you. Many of you have prayed for us. So that means that the work that he's done, you partnered with him in. So he's answered your prayers to, to bless that church and turn it around. So I'm here to tell you, thank you for doing that. I'm also here to thank you for sending, releasing some people to come there with us. We would, we would not be where we are today if it weren't for those people. And so thank you for your generosity and open-handedness to say, yes, we'll send some of our people over there to be a blessing because they, they absolutely have been. And so thank you very much, Redemption Gateway, for all your blessings towards us at Redeemer. Now, uh, you've been in Psalm 8. We had that reading there. So I want you to pause for a second. I want to start us out with a question. Um, when was the last time you got away from all the light pollution and was just in the middle of, of nowhere and looked up at the night sky? You know, if you were to do that tonight, what would happen in your mind? Would you, would you be in awe of how massive it is? Would you be in awe of how small you are? Would you become a philosopher, you know, and start going, I wonder how it all got here, and how long has it been here, and what's my place in this? Would you do like me? I would take out my phone, open Google Sky, and I'd just start looking for things, like, where's Mars, you know, where's Saturn? Like, I'd just be doing that. But for, for you and for me, the question that, that this text is begging is, when we, when we would do that, if we would do that, let's say tonight, how many of our thoughts would be on God? How long would our, our thoughts meditate there and, and park in this spot where we're thinking about the one who created this whole thing? This is what happened to David in Psalm 8. He's a shepherd somewhere. He's a king in his palace. He's running from his enemies. He's somewhere, but he's looking up at the night sky, and, and it's this, this, this vision of the night sky that is prompting the worship that we have in Psalm 8. So this passage is going to teach you, and it's going to teach me how to worship. We're going to see very clearly some real strong promotion, some real strong stimulus to worship. So creation does for him what it's supposed to do for you, what it's supposed to do for me, which is to promote worship. Nature's full of God. Creation is, is his witness. It is, it is always screaming that God exists, that, that he is good, that he is powerful. That verse one, he is, he's majestic. 
And I hope that's the sense that you have today after looking at Psalm 8. This first part of, is, this first part of Psalm 8 is Genesis 1 set to music. David, David is looking at the stars and he's writing in his journal and then he shares this song with all of us. So let's look starting really in the, the words above verse 1. Those, you see those words that are capitalized? To the choir master according to the Giddeth, the Psalm of David. All of that is scripture. It is just as much scripture as verses 1 to 9. So these, are, so these words are, are written by King David. They're, they, they, here, this, 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 this song here is given to the choir master. It says, according to the Giddeth. Now, scholars don't know what that means, according to the Giddeth. They know it means female from Gath. And so maybe some really large women used to sing this song, right? Because Gath is where who was from? Goliath, right? So Goliath lives in Gath, and so maybe this is maybe this is according to some instruments that those large women, you know, used. I have no idea. <laughs> Nobody knows what what this is from, but but they know that this is this is the, the, maybe it was a melody that was sung there. But but Psalm eight, Psalm eighty one, and Psalm eighty four all say according to the Giddeth. And when you look at all three of those passages, they're all full of of joy and they're full of happiness and thanksgiving. And so as you think about this song being actually performed, this is not a funeral dirge. This was an upbeat, happy, clappy kind of song that people were excited to sing about. And and really, why wouldn't they be? If you think about it, David knows the God of the universe. And so, of course, it's going to be a happy song. Now, notice verse 1. He starts the song with these words, O Lord, our Lord. Now, in English, that sounds redundant. But these are, these are not the two same words in Hebrew. So it'd be more literally, O, o Yahweh, our Lord. <clears throat> so Yahweh is the actual name of God. Okay? So this is the, the covenant name, his, his special name that he gives his people. It's, it's a word that means that I've always been. There's never been a time when I didn't exist, that I've always, ever, only existed. Yahweh, notice, is identified as our Lord. It doesn't say my Lord. It doesn't say the Lord. It says, it says our Lord. Think of the sweetness and the intimacy and the closeness that this God of the universe who creates it all is, is David's personal Lord, not just his personal Lord, but the people of Israel, he's singing on behalf of the people. The creator's their God. By grace, he's our God too. And he, notice, is the Lord. He's the king. He's the ruler. He's the master compared to you and to me. That's his position compared to us. The eternal creator then is our personal God. He's, he's our kind and benevolent king. So at this moment, just in these opening words, David's heart is just overflowing. Just can't believe as he's looking at the sky that the one who created it all, that he has a connection with that God. Now, after identifying who he's singing to, now David starts to say why. Notice verse 1 again. How majestic is your name in all the earth. It's not even a complete sentence. It's just a, a, a shout of exclamation. It's just like, how majestic, how incredible are you? That's what that word means, majestic. It means awe-inspiring, even a, a little intimidating. He's the most impressive being, notice, in all the earth, in existence, He's, he's, and, and that's really a huge understatement because whoever number two is on the list of impressiveness, right, is infinitely beneath the one who created it all. And so look at the end of the verse there. It says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Read that carefully. It doesn't say you've set your glory in the heavens. It says you've set your glory above the heavens. Your glory then is the crown on top of creation. Your glory is beyond creation. The cause is always greater than the effect. God is greater than everything he created. So the vast splendor of creation is just the tip of the sheer impressiveness of the God who created it all. What you and I see when we look out at creation is just, it's just, a, it's just a, a tiny fraction 
of how incredibly impressive, amazing our God is. This theme continues to praise. Look at verse two. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger, that these little babies stop, the, stop your enemies. You think like, how could this creator God have any enemies, right? Like you're not smart if you are an enemy of this God. You're gonna see like there's no chance for an enemy against this God. Now, now this passage seems out of place, and so, but Jesus helps us. So I want you to keep your finger here in Psalm 8 and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. If you got a Bible, uh, one of those hardcover, it's page 826. Matthew 21. So as you turn there, this is the week that Jesus is going to the cross. It's the very beginning. He's ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. He is, all the people are shouting Hosanna, but most of them don't even know what they're doing. They don't really recognize him as the Messiah. He goes into the temple, he cleans it out of all the con men, and then after that, he's healing people. And as he's healing people, there are these children that are singing songs of salvation to him, save us. And as, as these children are singing songs of salvation that really only belong to God, the religious leaders see that, and it stops them, just like it says in 8.2. It stops them, and they start saying, hey, Jesus, look at verse 16. They said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Do you hear what these children are saying? They're blaspheming. They're, they're asking you to do what only God can do. And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read, which is a total slam on them, right? They're experts in the Bible. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you prepared praise. So he quotes Psalm 8 too. Now from this verse, I want you to notice four things. First, verse 16 seems different than we read in Psalm 8 too. If you remember, Psalm 8 too says that he established strength. But, but Matthew 21, 16 says you prepared praise. So how are those two, those, those things don't sound the same, but, but that word has, has a range of meanings. And so the question is, is there anywhere else in the Old Testament where it says, uses this word in the context of worship? And there is. Second Chronicles 30, 21. Listen, listen, as I describe this word in the context of worship, this word translated strength in Psalm 8 too. The people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. Can you imagine that a seven day long church service? And the Levites, that's right, I heard that. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing, and here's our word, with all their might to the Lord. So this, this idea, so this establishing strength is a saying that means, it's not what I was doing earlier, which was I was, I was worshiping, but I was whispering to, to save my voice until right now. This is full-throated, full-bodied, all-out strength worship. This is, this is with all your might kind of worship. And so Jesus, so here, that's what's happening here. And it's, it's the kind of worship that stops people in their tracks, especially the enemies of God. They go, what is going on here? This isn't right. Second, Jesus interprets Psalm 8-2 literally. So God establishes praise from children and then hear these children singing to Jesus. So there's this, there's this literal interpretation there. Third, if Jesus quotes Psalm 8-2 to the religious leaders, then that means they are the foes, the avengers, the bad guys, the ones who were, who were against God. Jesus knows this, and the religious leaders know this. And so when he says this to them, he's, well, he's like, well, these are the children. So that means you are the bad guys in this passage. Not good. But then the most incredible part for me in studying this passage is that the kids are singing to Jesus in Matthew 21, but in Psalm 8, too, the children are singing to who? Yahweh, right? So Jesus takes this passage about Yahweh and says, what's being said in Psalm 8, too, is really being said about me. Jesus is making a claim to deity in this moment. That's going to become very important 
later on today. So now back to Psalm 8. You can turn back there now. So the songs, the words, even the babblings of infants stop God's enemy and dis- enemies and display his glory. And I would challenge you, Google um, science uh, infant babblings. And you will be amazed at what science has learned about the babbling of infants, how it helps them form language, and how, how they've, they've studied this stuff. And again, it's just another moment where whether it's the, the vastness of the universe or the, some of the most insignificant beings in the universe, these little babies, both of them are shouting that God is glorious. This God is so impressive. Look at verse 3. He creates everything. And when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. This is the only reference to David in the passage, and he's just sitting there in awe. He's just, he's just looking up at the sky. Maybe he's laying down, and he's just looking up. And, he just, and notice he says there, this is, these are your heavens. You own them. You created them. These belong to you because you created them. And notice it says there, you did all this work with your fingers, not his arm or his hands, his fingers. Now, our fingers, I don't know about you, my fingers don't do anything mighty, right? They poke, like that's about it. Like there's no, there's no might in, in our fingers, but here, just with God's fingers, he creates everything. Just think about that. that that's what's being said here. This, the sheer awesomeness of the universe is, is pitifully minor compared to God. Made it with his fingers. It's nothing for him. Easy as a snap. But fingers also speak of intricacy, He's the divine artist. He's the craftsman. A comparison would be a fine needlework or a pianist or a master sketcher or a painter or a sculptor. So God is using his his fingers for intricate detail. And think about that. Whether it's the vastness of the universe or the the infinitesimally small world of a cell, there is a a fine tuning. There is an, an intricacy to the creation. And we're seeing that in just these words right here. This work is so detailed. Verse three, it says that he sets everything in place. All the stars, all the planets, even our sun and moon sets them all in place. He arranges them exactly where they are, how they are, to do what they do. So as we read about David's mind just being flooded with awe and wonder, we're actually being taught with these words how to worship. So to summarize this, we're worshiping our creator when we stand in awe of his infinite greatness. We stand in awe of his infinite greatness, we are worshiping the God who is there. Now there's nothing greater than God, nothing more worthy of our respect and amazement than him. And now you might be wondering, like, duh, like Luke brought you in here to say that? Like, of course, of course. But here's our problem. We stand in awe of creation, right? We, we visit Sequoia and we stand under General Sherman in awe. We go to the Grand Canyon and we stand there in awe. We, we look at the night sky and we are in awe of the creation. We look at, a, at crashing waves or, or we look at, at, a, at thunderous storms and we stand in awe. We know more about the night sky than David could have possibly imagined. We stand in awe of the creation. But again, the question is, do we see through the creation how often do we see through the creation to the God who created it all? And then how often do we, do we pull the e-brake and just stay there and let our minds just marinate in these truths and think about them over and over that causes us to stand in awe of our creator? See, we tend to stand in awe of the creation, which is a real danger for us. Deuteronomy 4.19, God warned people against worshiping creation. Romans 1.23, instead of worshiping God, we reject our creator and we worship the creation instead. But I want, I want to expand your mind a little bit more about this God. So turn to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, that's page 826. Isaiah 40. God is going to tell people to do what David is doing in this passage. 
Isaiah 40 is page 600, my bad. Page 600. So he's saying to them, hey, I want you to go do what David was doing. So look at chapter, uh, chapter 40 of Isaiah. Look at verse 26. God commands us to do what David did in Psalm 8. It says, lift up your eyes on high and seize. Look up at the sky. And then it says, who created these? And then he answers his own question. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because of his strong power, not one is missing. Astronomers estimate that there are one billion trillion stars. That is a one with 21 zeros after it. And God's like, oh yeah, that's Fred. That's Tina. That's Miguel. Like he's just, he knows them all. All one billion trillion of them. And he creates them all. Notice it says there, by the greatness of his might, because of his strong power, not one of them is missing. They're all exactly where they're supposed to be, exactly how they're supposed to be. I mean, we're talking infinite knowledge, infinite power. We are talking something far beyond any of us. And and then there's one more. Look at verse 12. Take a look at God's greatness here. No wonder the night sky is causing David to, to just be amazed at his greatness. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Translation, all of the waters in the universe. I'm sorry, all the waters on our planet. It's like, oh yeah, right here. It's about right here. All of it. And then notice this, and measures, marks off the heavens with a span. The span is the distance between your thumb and your pinky. Scientists estimate that our universe is somewhere between 46 and 92 billion light years across. One light year is how far light travels in a year, right? So it takes someone 46 to 92 billion light years to travel from one side of the universe to the other, and God's like... I think it's about this. That's, that's about it. I mean, it's about the size of, I don't know, maybe your, your Bible, right? God's like, oh, universe? Oh, it's big? It's impressive? Really? It's about like this. If we were to shrink the entire universe down to the size of our earth, our galaxy, not our planet, our galaxy would be the size of a grain of sand, which means our planet would be a molecule. Which means you and me would be like little tiny, like one billionth of a fraction of a lepton of an electron of a molecule. That's us. Each of us, we would be, I mean, do you feel the weight of insignificance yet versus the greatness of the God of the Bible? We don't feel this, but each of us is a speck on this planet, but this planet is a speck in the Milky Way, and the Milky Way is a speck in the universe, Are you beginning to, again, to sense how majestic this God really is? Nothing comes close to deserving your amazement and your awe like he does. And think about this. Just think about one star, our sun. The sun that he made produces enough energy to power 3,000 trillion light bulbs in one hour. Okay? Or let's put it this way. In one second... One second that the sun, right now, well, the sun's kind of down, but somewhere it's up, it's up. So in one second, the sun generates more energy than has ever been used in all of human history. Now, if that's one star and a relatively small one at that, there are one billion trillion stars. And how powerful must God be if these trillions and trillions of effects cannot possibly be greater than their cause? He, verse 3, sets all of it where it is, exactly where it is. 
Do you know if we were any closer or farther from the sun, life would be impossible? If the moon were any closer or farther from us, life would be impossible. It's almost like verse three is true. It's almost like someone set it intricately with his fingers in place exactly where it is so that there would be life here so that we would stand in awe and worship the God who does it all. You see, we can't even begin to fathom the microscopic edge of just how majestic, awesome, impressive this God really is. And even if we did, we wouldn't have the words to describe it. Our vocabulary would fail. All we would be able to do is stand in awe of his infinite greatness. Now, we may have better knowledge of the night sky than David, but we could never possibly respond to the night sky any better than David did. Which means that no matter what's happening in the world, God is greater. Which means that no matter what is happening in your life, God is greater. No matter how great a person is, even if you are blasphemously told to call them your majesty, they are less than an electron compared to God. And you may have noticed in verse three, we stopped mid-sentence. They put a verse break right in the middle of that sentence. But like all good meditations on the greatness of God, it leads David to humiliation before God. Look at, turn back to, to Psalm eight and look at verse four. It says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is, there's absolutely no reason you should do that, God. None. How significant is a molecule on one grain of sand? And yet, that is our planet in this universe. And if it's that true, and if that's true, what does that make us on this planet? Nothing. Nothing. In contrast to God, our 92 billion light year long universe is nothing. In contrast to our universe, we are nothing. The word nothing is an exaggeration. That word man there means one who is frail, limited, and incurably sick. The phrase son of man means from the dust. Insignificant doesn't begin to describe us in relation to the universe, let alone into the relation to the God of this universe. When we truly begin to grasp the microscopic edge of his majesty and greatness, it will humble us. It should humble us like it did David. It should humble us that you know anything about him. It really should. Did you notice verse four doesn't say, what is man compared to you? That would be a joke. Notice what it says there. What is man that you are mindful of him? That word means knowing and responding to. Notice verse four. He's constantly mindful, but also it says there in verse four that he cares for us. Though he's infinitely great, our creator doesn't just care about us, like he has warm feelings for us when he thinks about us. Notice what the text says. He cares for you. He intervenes in our lives. He does us good. This impressive creator is a caring father. So David's words teach us how to worship again right here. So, so let's take our cues from him. And as we're thinking through how to worship, we, we worship when we are humbled by God's inconceivable grace. So to be humbled by God's inconceivable grace, isn't that what's happening in verse four? God's greatness in verses one to three put David in his proper place, infinitesimally insignificant, utterly humbles him before the God who, verse one, is our own personal Lord, who responds to us, who knows us, who intervenes, who does us good because he cares for us. Friends, that is inconceivable grace. It is inconceivable that we who are so insignificant compared to the universe, let alone to the God who created the universe, that this God would care about and care for us. 
How often do you care about one molecule in one grain of sand? Anybody? I love those molecules. I think about them all the time. I orient, I orient everything I'm doing in order to be a blessing to those molecules. Nobody, right? Why in the world would God do that for us? And notice there's more grace to humble us. Look at verse 5. You made him a little lower than the angels, the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. One author put it this way. He said, nowhere is human dignity more strongly affirmed in the entire Bible than in these verses right here, verses four to eight. Psalm eight is not so much about God's greatness as it is about his grace towards the human race. There's just no reason for it. He doesn't get anything from us. He's not, he's not impressed with anything we do. Again, the universe, he's like, oh yeah, like, I think it's like this big, right? And we're like, not even a, not even a pinprick in that. We're nothing. So the, 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 the wonder of wonders is not that you, is, 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 is not that, that, that God, has, like, like, like God is out there like, oh, I love them. The wonder of wonders is that we have anything to do with him at all. Because he's really like so above and beyond our universe, let alone some little floating dot in the middle of this vast galaxy, the great one has given incredible great honors to nothings. He takes dust in verse six, he gives us authority over his creation. He takes the trivial and makes us central to this universe. So this centrality that we feel, this, this sense of importance that we feel, comes from the fact that God crowns us. Notice verse one, he creates us a little lower than the beings that live in heaven. Well, what does that mean? Well, they have powers that we don't have. They're immortal and we're not. So we're just a little, we're just below them, it says. But we are above creation because we're created in God's image, right? So we're more like God than anything else in the whole universe. And then like Genesis 1, we're given the charge to care for God's creation. So just like, you know, Meghan Merkel, right? She, She wasn't born royal, but she is now. So we are crowned as creation's royalty, it says in verse in verse five, we're crowned, but not by right, by inconceivable grace. Being images is the highest possible honor, making us more like him than anything in creation. And then notice he catapults us from our insignificance into the realm. Notice it says there in verse six, into the realm, I'm sorry, verse five, of glory and honor. Those words glory and honor are usually used in the Bible to speak of God. He takes things, glory and honor, that belong to him alone, and he gives them to insignificant molecules like us. Are you beginning, again, to be humbled by by the incredible, inconceivable grace that he's shown us? And we didn't steal dominion away from him like we could. Verse 6, the Lord gives it to us. He made made us lords and masters and rulers over creation. This is delegated authority that God shares with human beings. And he, notice he places all of it under our feet, another picture of authority and dominance and control. All of this significance, all of this dignity and honor given to less than nothings. Molecules become creation's masters by inconceivable grace. Now, do we experience now? We don't. We don't experience this now. Turn to Hebrews chapter two. Turn to Hebrews two, page 1001. Page 1001, just after creation, man sinned. And the race fell from this privileged position of honor so that now much of the universe is hostile to us. 
In Hebrews chapter 2, the point is that Jesus is better than angels, saying in verse 5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Verse 6, it, it has been, chapter 2, verse 6, It's been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, I'm putting everything in subjection to him, that's human beings. He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's how we live. The universe is, is hostile to us. Parts of this planet are hostile to us. Animals are hostile to us. The ground is hostile to us. But Jesus is better. Sin enters the world. Man falls from his privileged position. But verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So you and I are used to hearing about Jesus' death, um, fixing our sin problem, and it's true, but there's more that he does. As the God-man, he regains the authority over creation that we lost in the fall. So Jesus, this second Adam, succeeds where the first Adam fails. He now, our representative, is the one human being that all things are subject to. And then he will fully extend the reach of that authority during the future millennium when Jesus returns to take possession of his universe. And we will reign upon the earth, his followers. This, will, this is still future when those who are in Christ are resurrected and reign with Christ for a thousand years upon the earth. And after that, the whole universe will be placed under Jesus' feet. All pockets of rebellion will be destroyed. Even death itself, God will recreate creation. Everyone, every last molecule of sin will be removed. And Revelation 22, 5 says, we will reign forever and ever. And then the glory and honor we see in Psalm 8, the dominion that God in his grace has destined mankind to, that will be your daily experience. This will not be hostile anymore. This will be the most perfect environment and you will be perfectly suited for this environment to do everything that God wants us to do. I mean, doesn't all this truth, all of this grace, all of this goodness cause your mental hard drive to crash at this incurable, unimaginable, inconceivable grace that God has shown you? By his grace, he takes dust and makes it human. By his grace, he made humans in his image, more like him than anything in creation. And then I want you to see this. Turn to John 17. John 17, this, I have no words for this. The amount of blessing that God shows us, we, we just get caught in this like he forgives us for our sins. But he does so much more. So Jesus is speaking to the Father, it's his prayer right before he's betrayed. And in verse 20 of John 17, that's page uh, 903, so they do not ask for these only. He's talking about the disciples, the 11. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that's all of us. We believe in Christ through the word of the apostles, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now watch this, verse 22. And the glory that you have given me, I give to them. Does your Bible say that? Do you, you see what Jesus just said here? The glory, the greatness, the honor, the majesty that Jesus has, he gives to his followers. It's not like Jesus, he gets the best stuff and then we get all the leftovers. And it's really awesome, but it's just not as good as his. No, he gives us his glory. And then keep reading. Look at verse 24. 
Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Sorry, verse 23 is where I wanted you to go. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you sent me, and look at this, and love them even as you loved me. Again, does your Bible say that? That Jesus, that the Father loves the followers of Jesus as much as he loves Jesus. Again, we're not getting some leftovers. We are getting the very apex, the very top of possible blessing in this universe. The actual same relationship that Jesus has with the Father becomes ours. The actual glory that he has as the eternal Son of God becomes ours. I mean, we're talking inconceivable grace at this moment. Can you believe he does that for molecules like us? Not just dust, but rebellious dust. Do you see why pride is laughable? Do you see why rebellion is laughable? Do you see how counterculture our, our world is? I mean, why it's so obvious to be counterculture to our world. Why that's so obvious when this is the God who is. Do you see why grace should humble us? Why his kindness should lead us to repentance? This is how we worship God. We we come before him in humility for his unbelievable, inconceivable grace. Now turn back to Psalm 8. Turn back to Psalm 8. It makes sense then. After all of that, right? Grace and greatness. After these two powerful ideas are put so firmly in our mind from Psalm 8. It's no wonder, and it makes total sense that this word, that this passage would end the way it began. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Like after contrasting his greatness with our insignificance and our insignificance with his grace. I mean, what more can we possibly say, right? Isn't, isn't the response to all of this like, wow, I, I, I don't know what to say, Lord. This is, this is a gift. This is, I just stand in awe of you. And I'm humbled by your grace to me. Many years ago, Emerson Hall was being built at Harvard University. And that, this, this hall was meant to house the, the philosophy department. So the plan was, as you go into the, the hall, there would be these doors. There'd be this big marble uh, uh, saying above the doors. And, and so the faculty got the chance to put the saying they wanted above the doors. And so the faculty got together, and after much discussion, they decided on a quote by a Greek philosopher named Protagoras, which reads, Man is the measure of all things. They leave for summer vacation, they come back, they're so excited, and up on the door they realize that they got overridden by the president of the school. The president of the school, instead of the words of a Greek philosopher, he put the, put the words of a Jewish king named David, Psalm 8.4, and it says above the philosophy department, even today, what is man that you are mindful of him? Can you see why David would even ask that question in light of the greatness and the grace of God? You and I will never understand the edges of what it means to worship until we see ourselves in light of the impressive greatness of our creator. And while being infinitesimally insignificant compared to him, the God who created everything knows you personally. He cares, verse four, for you. And by his inconceivable grace, he made his images rulers over his creation. We sinned, we lost it all, but again, by his grace, he, Yahweh, our Lord, saved us. As we saw in Matthew 21, the majestic Lord of, 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 of Psalm 8 
is the baby who was born in the manger. This, on that first Christmas, the majestic God became a molecule and died on a cross and rose from the dead to save sinners and restore everything that we lost from the fall. And Jesus not only restores our glory as rulers of creation, but to all who will believe in him, who will give their lives to him, he gives them his status as the son of God. We become co-heirs with Christ, receiving the same glory that he deserves, receiving the same, being, being given access to the love-flooded relationship that Jesus has with the Father. This is what causes worship. So tonight, I'd encourage you, if you can, get away from it all. Look up at the night sky. Take out your phone. Read Psalm 8 as you're looking up at that sky. And then stand in awe of God's infinite greatness and be amazed at his incredible, inconceivable grace. Let's pray. God, thank you for your inconceivable grace. May that grace and may your greatness have a constant interplay in our thoughts about you. We do not interact with you rightly. I think of, I think of Isaiah 50 when you, when, when you said, you thought I was just like you. Oh God, you, you are so far above us. And yet you are so kind to condescend, not only to know about us, but to care for us. So much so that you became one of us to save us, to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And so, Jesus, we worship you, and we remember that before you were that baby in the manger, you were the God who measured the universe with the span of your hand, measured the waters in the palm, in the palm of your hand, and who knows every star by name. What an amazing grace you've shown us. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.